This is a commentary on the four foundations of mindfulness. In the large number of um, um, sutras, discourses of the Buddha, two of them are uh, regarded as very vital aspects of the teachings. Uh, The first, which was uh, given in Saranath, which explains and uh, points to the middle way. And in that initial teaching of the Buddha, he said there are two extremes in life. One is selfishness, self-interest, self-obsession, and the other is self-hate, self-rejection. And practice is to find the middle ground between those extremes to come to insight and a liberating understanding about the way things are. And another very important, much loved, much respected discourse in the Buddhist tradition and specifically in the Theravada tradition, the sounds tend to pick up with the microphone. Um, in the Theravada tradition uh, is the four foundations of mindfulness discourse and it's one of the rather uh, ironic things in the Dharma that and in Buddhism there is often more interest in remembering these uh, and chanting them than actually applying the teachings. The Buddha quite regularly described himself as a physician so a comparable situation would be you and I going to the doctor getting our prescription, our medicine and then going home and reading out loud half the day what's written on the box. (laughs) Unfortunately there are far too many Buddhists in the world who are doing precisely that via chanting. And whenever I mention this, there are always people on retreats who come up to me and say, oh Christopher, chanting is so meaningful for me. And chanting opens my heart and etc, etc. But it's still reading the label on the box uh, there. So it's, as you can tell, it's not my cup of tea. Uh, It never was and I tend to regard chanting uh, as one of the most um, effective uh, sleeping tablets known to the human species. <laughs> so, starts off with the talk. Thus have I heard. Then it's a uh, meeting with the uh, people of the Karu uh, uh, people, and in that, it's a basic outline description of pointing to the immediacy of liberation that comes across in every section uh, of this talk. One of the factors which has contributed to appreciation of its importance is that in the Diga Nikaya, the longer length discourses, there is the Maha Satipatthan Sutra, the great or greater discourses on the four foundations of mindfulness 
which there is an extension of one of the sections of the last uh, section. So in other words, this discourse is repeated in, an, in another uh, collection of uh, teachings of the Buddha to get the point over. So what I would like to do in this um, half an hour period or so is to go over each of the four sections of the four foundations of mindfulness bearing in mind that all the vipassana traditions all the practices all the methodologies all the ways of pointing to freedom somehow and in some ways or other have their bearing their connection and their influence from the interpretation of this discourse and that's the commonly acknowledged uh, aspect not only in the Theravada tradition but in the other traditions it's, so it's genuinely a very core teaching and the first paragraph outlines the essential uh, motive and uh, intention with regard to this particular body of uh, teaching and I'll just read it to you but it, sa it says there is the direct path Ekagata is the Pali word it gets translated in various ways but direct I think, probably the most accurate and true but also at times it's translated as the only path the only way the one way but tends to carry that element of concern for some of us that sounds a little bit narrow there is, this, there is only one way to so Bhikkhu Bodhi's eminent translation of there is a direct path I think describes it uh, more accurately and uh, more in the spirit as well and for, for what? for the overcoming of sorrow and lamentation lamentation being the intensification of sorrow remember, real grief, sobbing is an expression of uh, lamentation for overcoming uh, pain and uh, unhappiness for realizing the true way an authentic way for liberation for the realization of nirvana nirvana meaning not so much a, a realm or a state but the happiness that comes out of liberation this is nirvana and then he's asked the question what are, what are the four foundations of mindfulness and the Buddha never gave anybody a chance to answer you can tell he asked the question <laughs> and then he out comes the answer and he says that one abides meditating, contemplating on body as body fully aware, mindful as a means to um, overcome uh, covetousness, that means grasping after things and grief around this world. And then he says exactly, exactly the same with regard to feelings, with regard to states of mind, and also with regard to Dharma, the fourth, which I'll explain in a few minutes' time. You can imagine over more than two and a half thousand years of dedicated meditators, t 
teachings in various traditions there are poems on Vipassana in the Chinese tradition there, there are stories and uh, insights passed on from the other traditions there's a huge wealth of commentary on insight uh, meditation in Thailand, in Burma, in uh, Sri Lanka the, the tradition of Vipassana, the Sanskrit word has gone to Tibet, has gone into China Zen is a reflection of uh, Vipassana in so far as the emphasis being put on hardcore meditation so the influences extend throughout the entire Buddhist world in, in various ways and what the tradition of Vipassana has done or is stating in a general way is we can put aside all the religion of Buddhism can put aside all the candles, the incense the statues and thank God the chanting <laughs> and turn our attention directly to what matters and so the statement is there are four areas that really need to be looked at in life and these act as the foundations, the word patana in Hindi it means station and it goes to the station, the railway station so this is a station for mindfulness called body a station, a place to stop and look at called feelings a station called states of mind, a station called Dharma one of the areas which has a slight mixture of interpretation is this seeing body as body because in the Pali language it also can mean seeing body in body and, the, and it's not clearly shown in the formation of the language but it could be one way or the other seeing body as body is learning to see the body without I and my here is body organic outcome of nature seeing it in those terms to see body in body is the same but as a slight, slightly different emphasis and my uh, teacher Ajahn Damodaro always said hen kai ne kai hen vedana ne vedana hen chit ne chit hen tam ne tam see the body in body see the feelings in feelings see the states of mind in states of mind see the Dharma in the Dharma what is meant by that in, which is another interpretation quite valid and significant for us it's not two bodies in any way but we are often involved in the what he called the outer body when we are concerned about our appearance when we are concerned about our age and our size and our weight and our shape and our colour when we look in the, in the mirror in the, uh, in the morning and start weeping at what we see <laughs> that all of that reflects the outer body all the images that we carry around the body how we are to other people, how we are to ourselves this is the outer body so to see body in body is to cut through that with mindfulness 
to be in touch with the bare experience of the body as it is. In that respect, gender has no importance. In that respect, age has no importance. Size, shape, uh, 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 colour, abilities, disabilities in the physical sense have no importance. It's just coming back to the body as it is and putting mindfulness to the body without grasping after, called covetousness, and also without sorrow and despair about how we are. <coughs> and then he goes into more, more detail in the section on uh, body, and I'll just uh, cover some of those uh, points. And the first one um, is the mindfulness of breathing. And once again, we have, uh, and some of you are very familiar with this, a, a long tradition of interpretation of mindfulness of breathing. So if you go to one teacher, he or she will say, well, concentrate on the tip of your nose. If you go to another teacher, he or she may say, well, be mindful of the rise and fall of the abdomen. If you go to another teacher, he or she may say, well, be aware of the whole breathing experience. The criteria, as always, is not we fitting in to what the text says. The criteria is what's helpful, what's valid, what works for us. In the actual instructions of the Buddha, he, in mindfulness of breathing, doesn't give a specific locality. He relies on the mindfulness aspect uh, itself, and, and the way that it's translated is that once establishes, quote-unquote here, mindfulness in front of one, and when one is breathing in long, taking a long breath, one is aware one is breathing in long, and when one is breathing out a long breath, one is aware one is breathing out a long breath. And when it's short, one is aware of that, uh, both uh, incoming and outcoming there. And part of the purpose of the mindfulness of breathing is towards calmness of body. We use the resource of mindfulness of breathing, as he said, to bring calmness to the samkara, that means the formation of the body, there. And this helps to keep us calm, clear and steady. And that is the samatha, calmness aspect of the there. But, of course, he also says that one learns to see the body as it is. That learning to see the body uh, clearly is to be aware of the body for clear insight about its changing, impermanent feature or characteristic. To be very, very clear about this. And the, and the intention to be very, very clear about this so that one abides not clinging to anything anywhere. That's the intention there. So we bring mindfulness to the body. We de develop meditation and practice of mindfulness of uh, breathing. We ex learn to experience the body clearly and directly. 
And through the insight and understanding that can come, we really see the suffering brought about by clinging. And sometimes it's clinging to life, it's clinging to health, it's clinging to youth, it's clinging to the uh, condition of the body in some way or other. And through the meditative awarenesses or mindfulness of seeing change come and go, the understanding that comes, the purpose of it is to cut through the clinging and thus seeing the futility of clinging to anything anywhere in the world. And then it goes on then to speak to apply such mindfulness practice, put the mindfulness in front of one, to, to use the words there, in such a way that it applies to sitting, walking, standing and reclining. Now, all four postures. And again, as we know, with the tradition, some teachers will emphasize, say, just the sitting posture. Others will emphasize sitting and uh, walking. Others will emphasize, like myself, sitting, walking and standing. And some Dharma students uh, wish the teachers would just emphasize reclining and nothing else, but we, we don't. <laughs> so, the four postures matter, and with the application of the four postures, plenty of times, morning, noon and night, to bring mindfulness to body for calmness, for insight, for liberating awareness. He then goes on further, and then this tremendous encouragement which the tradition of mindfulness gives to us and that is to apply it all the time to really be as mindful in lots of situations and as we know with mindfulness the practice and the application of it it goes on here when one is getting dressed when one is um, moving the body, picking things up to uh, eat, consuming food, uh, tasting, defecating, uh, urinating, walking, talking, keeping silent. Let's be conscious human beings of all of those uh, activities. And as Ajahn Buddhadasa said, some of his um, uh, great uh, insights came to him while he was squatting uh, on the toilet. So everything's there, there. And, uh, and for some people in this world it's the only uh, letting go they ever do, but anyway. <laughs> so, then the Buddha, I mean it, then the, 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 the Buddha goes on to the bodily parts and we used to chant this as, as uh, 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 monks Unfortunately, Kesa Noma Naka Dante Tacho da 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 da. And what this is, is mindfulness and reflection on all the different parts of, 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 of the body. And I'll just read some of them uh, 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 to you um, lungs, intestines, stomach, feces, bile, phlegm, pus, blood, sweat, fat, tears, grease spittle, snot and urine and the word he uses is asupa Sup my, my name when I was a monk my name was Kitty Supo Sup 
Supo uh, means um, beautiful, and Kitty means uh, reputation. I clearly I haven't lived up to it, but anyway. <laughs> so sometimes I am introduced as, uh, "Good morning, Mr. Beautiful Reputation." But anyway, so. <laughs> Definitely not in my case. And uh, so, asupa means the not beautiful. And as we know, often in culture, so obsessed with beautiful aspects of the body, the Buddha points out, hey, what about the not beautiful? And you've just heard a list of the not beautiful. Part of the teaching of that is just to be clear about the body, just to be clear. Uh, about the less than beautiful and, and it's not very easy to be feel romantically inclined to people's grease, spittle, snot and urine there may be some out there but n not too many and we sometimes we get so obsessed with the beautiful we forget hey, this is makeup of the body uh, uh, as, as well and, and then going to the elements and again an important aspect which helps to in contemplation of the uh, elements, earth, air, fire, water, helps also to give that sense of connection <coughs> with the elements in the larger sense of life, the elements you know, of, of uh, hardness and uh, of uh, air, of movement, of fire, meaning of temperature, of uh, water, the cohesive factor which stops things breaking, cracking uh, up, and of course the spacious element. So as we meditate on the body as elements, it helps to reduce, once again, the I and my, seeing it as interactive elemental life, and correspondingly gives us a closer sense of connection and intimacy with the nature. And I once wrote a poem of that, uh, the hair in our head is like the grass of the earth, and when we lie down on our, on our side, it's like the hills and, and, and valleys in the nature. When we uh, sweat, it's like the dew of the morning. When the, um, uh, the drops of rain come, it's rather like the tears coming from our, from our eyes. When with the uh, um, veins, uh, are rather like the rivers and the streams running, etc. So we have this very deep and natural, obviously, connection with the nature. The contemplation of the elements is to remind us that we're not separate existence. In fact, the whole idea of human being, in any way which is idea, is also an immediacy of separating oneself from the nature, just by holding to the idea of being human. He goes further on, and then goes to the um, contemplations on death. And as we know, in our uh, society, death is very, very much hidden from us and I've noticed over the uh, years when discussing this how many people come to me and say you know, Christopher I've never seen a dead body uh, in, in my life or I just saw just you know, my grandmother for a moment or, moment or two it's quite different in the, in the Buddhist countries there's a genuine and healthy encouragement to see uh, corpses so in the monastery where I was every, every week Corpses would come in, the monks, nuns, we would see them, we would uh, there. And, and in the Ajand, in the abbot's hut, there, there was a glass case. And in that glass uh, case, 
there was a uh, corpse of a family there. I have a photograph I can uh, show you there. And when one of the old monks uh, died, who was much loved in the monastery, regarded as an arahant, as one who had come to the fulfillment of uh, Dharma practice, he was regularly asked if he would teach. And he was loved in the monastery for his saintliness. And he said, no, no, he said, I can't teach. But he said, ah, but I could teach when I'm dead. So he said, don't burn me. He said, I'll, 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 I'll be a silent teacher when I, after I die. So they put a couple of injections of the formula in, inside of him. He was uh, uh, put in the glass box. And regularly, I remember when I went to visit the abbot and to see the, the, the monks where I'd spent something like three years, uh, three, three months, he was in the grounds of the, of the monastery. I didn't, and I didn't know he had died, so they had him sitting in a chair. They would take him out of the glass box and polish him regularly. <laughs> <laughs> like people do with their car on Sunday morning, you know what I mean? So, and as I walked by, I looked at him, and the first thought that arose in my mind was, you don't look very well at all. <laughs> I didn't realise he was dead. <laughs> and um, I foolishly told my mother this situation, and she said, sick. <laughs> so, but it's a reminder to us. So there are these nine contemplations, and and basically the nine. I've actually had the privilege of uh, seeing all of them. The the nine contemplations of the corpse in different conditions. So from the early to later stages of uh, deterioration, um, to the bloated corpse, to the skeleton smeared with blood and the, the and bones which have been disconnected and uh, and the, the whole uh, nightmare that can go on for some people as a result of what happened to them when they died and the, all, all of this is just a reminder to one of the impermanence of it all nothing is worth clinging to in order that one abides as he says in the text freely in this world seeing it for what it is seeing it uh, as, as it is and in that, in that respect, the, the teachings and the uh, practices there of uh, establishing mindfulness to see body as body or to see body in, in body, it isn't an easy practice by any, any, any means, but it's the intention behind it is, may not be comfortable, but a direct meeting with the immediacy of, it, of existence to see it for what it really is. And therefore we're not living in projections and fears and anxiety, possessiveness and clinging. We're not afraid of life, we're not afraid of aging, we're not afraid of sickness, we're not afraid of death because we, we've looked the tiger in the eye and basically it's got no teeth. That's what this Satipatthana tells us basically. So then it goes to areas of feelings, Vedana. Again, we can just say, let's see feelings as feelings. It's quite a practice to, to do this. And, or it can be interpreted as seeing the feelings in the feelings. What that means in this case is, sometimes 
we're engaged in a uh, caught up in a storyline a lot of I and my is going on a lot of memory probably and projection views and opinions time is very strong what's happened in the past present or might happen in the future and we're completely caught up in that all the personality patterns are involved or a lot of them involved in it and it's a very difficult experience to see the feelings in the feeling is to put the mindfulness again to in such a way that we really get to the bare feeling experience itself quite often one might say mostly those feelings are actually located in the body if we get see the feelings in the feeling we get behind the storyline and what we experience quite often it could be let's say it's grief let's say it's caught up in some trauma that's going on some desire or wanting or agitation or problem or negativity anxiety whatever it might be we then turn our attention to the feelings and quite often as I say we notice it in the body so we're going through the external emotion of it all cutting deeper with it through the power of the mindfulness and just seeing where, what we feel we may be feeling contraction in the chest we might be feeling uh, in the stomach area um, tightness we may be feeling waves of panic going down in the ab abdomen or it may be a holding in the shoulders or whatever, any location of the body and so our practice is learning to see the feelings in the feelings and as I say, sometimes it's just clearly obvious that if I, I put my attention, my mindfulness practice into the body, into those sensations get deeper than the storyline the influence of that through seeing change moment to moment as much as possible as is, which is the instruction here it may transform the feelings what we are feeling in the moment and the outcome of that is that the story will think about it differently because we're not feeding it with grief we're not feeding it with selfishness we're not feeding it with unhappiness or agitation because we've cut deeper than that sometimes to see the feeling as the feeling is as is instructed here to say this there is this feeling which is happening right now and it is coming and going and to be very clear about that so once again all that goes with that feeling generally speaking a story or a picture or an image or a memory or a disturbance in some way or other there is this feeling which is arising and it's arising for one reason only to pass that's all that's about its usefulness it arises to pass when we forget this we keep getting the idea and the view it's arising to stay forever it's arising to make me a victim it's arising to make my life miserable no it's not it's just arising to pass and when they're strong as I mentioned quite often in the body so 
as with the body the pointer is to be mindfulness of feelings which are arising and there are three kinds pleasant unpleasant or painful and feelings in between so sometimes you and I say oh, I know what a pleasant feeling is and what an unpleasant feeling sometimes they're not feeling particularly pleasant it doesn't feel particularly unpleasant but again it has a feeling factor to it and sometimes the identification with when well, it's not pleasant not unpleasant sometimes the identification with that can uh, lead to dullness it can lead to boredom it can lead to lethargy then it becomes of course distinctly unpleasant and, pain, and painful much of what we focus on in life has its background as the Buddha said in meeting in feelings not to forget the incredible influence in our life that feelings have upon anything and everything no matter how intellectual and philosophical we are how cerebral everybody tells us we are whatever how well educated or over educated we might be still the feeling factor is there still we feel approval for this and we feel approval for that we forget the feeling and we end up with a lot of intellectual knowledge but it requires a feeling about and so the teachings and practices are teaching us to see what the feeling influences see if there's any clinging going on and can we find freedom through mindfulness that there is just this feeling arising and passing he then goes on <coughs> to um, st states of mind and the word uh, chitta yeah. and what's actually um, given here is eight opposites so that when you and I in fact rather than each section is equally important it's not linear we see through our experience how using say the state of mind as a, a station to give attention to can be a resource for liberating insight and understanding that eight opposites are, are given or neutral supports rather than opposites not opposites against each other but they're given as um, greed, hate and delusion they're greed, we often think of greed as um, making too many pilgrimages to the refrigerator we often have this idea of what greed is it, it can include that but it has a wider meaning of uh, this pursuit of pleasure in such a way that it becomes such a priority and sometimes of course keep repeating it as well so that can apply to uh, any of the senses and there's and then one is aware through the mindfulness of how one is affected by this wanting and the what I call the opposite there what, it, what the experience is, what the mind state is unaffected by this wanting 
what the mind state is when there's negativity and anger and what the state is inwardly when we're not in a state of negativity and anger what it is when we're in delusion delusion can include blindness, blindness to things delusion includes projections delusion includes uh, fears all, all of that comes under the general heading of delusion there so what's going on for us? are we clear about that? And one of the important things confusion is another form of uh, uh, delusion one of the extraordinary things about the inner life and I, when I engage in a one-to-one or an inquiry I sometimes refer to this the person says to me Christopher, I'm totally confused yesterday you said this today you said that oh, my mind's in incredible confusion or one teacher comes in and gives one instructions and the next day you come in and give another set of instructions you know, all, all this goes on in the, in the retreat and the person's talking great detail about all the confusion they're going through or some personal confusion in their daily life and so sometimes I say gosh you're exceptionally clear about your confusion mm-hmm. and they say oh yeah, absolutely I'm clear I'm really confused <laughs> 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 so this element of being clear about something can apply to anything and that's the element of the mindfulness one can be very clear about feeling completely unclear there's this extraordinary capacity to reveal anything clearly even the unclearness even the confusion there so these uh, uh, eight there greed, hate and delusion as I just mentioned to you and then the others which we also know as well the mind which feels contracted sometimes we feel very contracted but sometimes our experiences we don't feel contracted we feel rather open and uh, spacious sometimes we feel very distracted and sometimes we feel very very focused sometimes we feel very uplifted exalted is the word and sometimes we feel rather what's the opposite of uplifted? down down, down. yeah we feel down and, and we're aware of that, uh, that sometimes we experience samadhi some will say I've never had that one and some will say um, uh, some, um, some will say oh, this is the experience of having no samadhi so it's an encouragement to see clearly not to grasp after so that through that and he comes to the important one sometimes one understands the mind which is liberated and one understands the mind which is not liberated and if it's the latter one looks at the mind and it's not free it's not liberated there then why not? why not? then comes to the uh, again always that constantly emphasizing uh, a key sentence in each of the four sections 
one establishes their mindfulness to the extent necessary. This is a very beautiful short term. There are some Buddhists, God bless them. I mean, I know there's no God, but if there was, God bless them. <laughs> that, who got the idea that we have to be mindful in every moment. And we have to, every single I have to be mindful. I have never met in my entire life anybody, anywhere, who is mindful in every moment. And recently, I was, uh, a few months ago, speaking with um, um, Bodhidharma, who is a Theravada uh, monk and teacher at Gaia House. And I said, said to him, uh, Bodhidharma, we're talking about mindfulness. And I can't remember what the incident was, but I think I couldn't find my keys, the front door key. I said, I said, after all these years, supposed to be a teacher of mindfulness, which my daughter thinks is a huge joke. <laughs> I can't find the, the front door key. You know, what kind of mindfulness is this? And then he said, one of the sweetest things I ever heard in 30 years. He said to me, Christopher, mindfulness has got nothing to do with memory. <laughs> it not only made my day, it made my entire existence. <laughs> He said, mindfulness is not about having a good memory. <laughs> mindfulness is being in the moment to see what is in front of one so that we are clear and free. He said, a person could be liberated, this is rather, this is rather a more serious point here, a person can be genuinely free, be very old, be losing their memory, have Alzheimer's disease, and be an Arahant. Otherwise, we make mindfulness totally dependent on good memory. And I thought it was a very insightful, a very profound, and very important point uh, there. And for people like me who keep forgetting where I put things, it's, oh, it's music. <laughs> music. <laughs> so, you know, so we keeping in primary or in focus there the importance of mindfulness to be well established so that we're not clinging anywhere to realise our great freedom as human beings. And then in the final, uh, uh, so he says just to the extent necessary. So he's not saying all the time, in every moment, to the extent necessary, he says, for bare knowledge, means bare inside, so that we abide, beautiful statement, we abide independently, freely, not clinging to anything. So we abide freely. It's very beautiful. And then it goes to the last one, which often gets translated by, as the word mind objects. Never feel comfortable with that. The word is Dharma, Dharma Nupassana, contemplation on the Dharma. And in that it's uh, including some of the important features of the Dharma to look at and examine our relationship to that so 
In the Digatnikaya, the longer length, there's an expansive explanation of the Four Noble Truths. Here it's rather uh, uh, brief, but it also, in this, is, includes um, the five aggregates, heart, mind and body of a human being, consciousness, uh, the relationship of the senses to the sense objects, looking at the seven factors for complete uh, liberation, for complete awakening, to bring all of those aspects of the teachings to our exploration, to establish mindfulness about the Dharma, in order to see things clearly, not clinging to anything in the world, and not clinging to body, not clinging to feelings, not clinging to states of mind, and definitely not clinging to the Dharma. So that the thread runs all the way uh, through, and then in the conclusion, as a little bit of extra encouragement and inspiration to the men and women of practice, he then says, for, for this liberation, he, sa he says, one doesn't have to practice, and then he goes through and sings song fashion, one doesn't have to practice for seven years, six years, five years, four years, three years, two years, one year. No. Then he says, one doesn't have to practice for seven months, six months, five months, four months, three months, two months. No. There he says. And then he comes uh, right, right down. He says, if one just practices for a week, it's enough for complete liberation. So that one, he says, um, here and now can know complete liberation there. So for years I've been telling people, coming on retreat. <laughs> coming for a week-long retreat. Plenty of time for complete liberation. And if they're doing eight days or ten days or fourteen days, this is much too long. <laughs> the Buddha said it, it must be true. <laughs> so it's an encouragement that we don't have to keep thinking in the long, long, long term with regard to all of this. The words here are here and now one knows complete freedom. May all beings live with mindfulness. May all beings see clearly into things. May all beings know great liberation.